You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 115, The Continental Congress and French Diplomacy. I'm stepping away from the war today to catch up on what the Continental Congress has been doing. We last left Congress in early July 1776, just after it approved the Declaration of Independence. Yet, even after approving the language of the Declaration on July 4th, Congress immediately turned to other business that same afternoon. Congress voted on a diplomatic delegation to Pittsburgh to meet with Indian tribes and held another vote on providing the Board of War with authority to hire employees to make flints for the Army and several other matters. In other words, there was no time to rest on their laurels or even reflect much on independence. The delegates did not even get around to creating the final draft of the Declaration for several more weeks. Most of them signed the copy that we today regard as the original on August 2nd. In fact, thousands of copies had already circulated around the country and were already on their way across the Atlantic before anyone signed what we consider the original declaration. Congress simply filed away that signed copy. It did not make any formal attempt to send that or any copy over to London. This was a declaration to the world, not a petition to their former leaders. Turning to other matters, the three most important ongoing committees in the fall of 1776 were the Board of War, the committee tasked with drafting the Articles of Confederation, and the Secret Committee of Correspondence, which handled foreign diplomacy. The late summer and fall of 1776 were, of course, chaotic months for the war. Congress watched General George Washington lose New York and New Jersey as his army eventually fell back to just outside Philadelphia by the end of the year. In the North, Congress saw General Benedict Arnold lose the Battle of Valcour Bay, opening upstate New York for invasion. Unfortunately for the Patriots, the British decided to hold off on that invasion until the following spring, but still, things did not seem to be going well for the Continental War effort. Aside from the day-to-day issues of running the Army, one of the Board of War's most contentious activities was promoting officers. General Washington made some recommendations, but did not press too hard for fear of infringing on civilian control of the Army. After Washington started losing battle after battle during the British invasion of New York, Congress had less interest in his views anyway. Many were debating the idea of selecting a new commander for the army. State representation among generals also remained a bone of contention. Although New England provided most of the soldiers, a disproportionate number of top officers came from southern states. 
John Adams and others from New England had supported this tactic a year earlier because they wanted to get the southern states on board with going to war. But by this time, they wanted to see more New Englanders in top positions. In August, Congress promoted four new major generals, all from New England. Got William Heath of Massachusetts, Joseph Spencer of Connecticut, John Sullivan of New Hampshire, and Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island. Missing from that list was another New Englander, Benedict Arnold of Connecticut. Arnold thought he deserved promotion, but all four of those men who were promoted were already senior to him as brigadier generals, so he patiently waited for his turn. Besides, at the time, he was preparing to fight the Battle of Valcour Island, after which Congress would certainly see the merit in promoting him. Congress also promoted six new brigadier generals in August, three from New England, James Reed, John Nixon, and Samuel Parsons, two from New York, Alexander McDougall and James Clinton, and one from Pennsylvania, Arthur Sinclair. This led to pushback from the southern colonies. The board had to bring in more southern balance by naming four more southern generals in September, Adam Stevens of Virginia, Christopher Gadsden and William Moultrie of South Carolina, and Lachlan McIntosh of Georgia. In October, they decided to add a couple more generals, William Maxwell of New Jersey and William Smallwood of Maryland. Now, don't worry, you don't need to remember all of these names. I'll talk more about each of these guys when they do something interesting. Congress's disappointment with the militia during the New York area fighting also persuaded many delegates of the need for a more professional and well-trained standing army. They accepted Washington's recommendation of three-year enlistments. Up until this time, most enlistments were a maximum of one year. With the longer enlistments, they could rely on a corps of trained Continental soldiers when things got tough. One of the problems with a standing army was that they were expensive. Congress still had no taxing authority because they could not even agree on a general outline on how to collect taxes. They were paying for everything with paper money that they just printed. This was essentially a promise to provide real hard currency at some future point. Churning out so much paper money already, combined with no plan after a year and a half on how they were going to make good on all this paper, had caused serious devaluation. Even with the amount they had produced, they still did not have enough, even of that paper money, to pay the army or provide soldiers with the basic necessities of food, clothing, and weaponry. The Board of War did its best to get what it could and to keep the Continental Army together, even as the British pushed them out of New York and back toward Philadelphia. While trying to deal with these pressing war issues, Congress also had been trying to put together Articles of Confederation since 1775, long before they even started debating independence. Without the Articles, Congress really had no basis for operating or doing much of anything. It had used some general rules of order that the members knew from their colonial legislatures, but they were essentially making everything up as they went along. There was no set of rules that gave Congress any authority to do anything or how they should operate. On July 12, 1776, Congress began debate on a proposed draft from John Dickinson. 
Now, Dickinson himself did not participate in this debate. He had left Congress to command a Pennsylvania battalion deployed to New York to help stop the British invasion there. Congress would debate this matter on and off for the next year and a half without reaching any consensus. The big issues involved whether each state should continue to get one vote or whether state population should determine representation. Also, there was a debate over how to tax the states. Some wanted to tax the population. Others wanted to tax the combined wealth of a colony. Finally, there was a big debate over competing colonial land claims. Many of the colonies had claims on land that conflicted with the claims of other colonies. Some of those claims reached all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. Now, some of the debates that were going on raised the slavery issue. To be clear, there was not any debate about whether or not to free them. But there were debates over whether slaves should be considered people for the purposes of calculating population of a state and whether to consider their value as property for purposes of taxation of a state. Slavery was becoming a contentious issue given all the recent talk about inalienable rights and things like all men are created equal. But all 13 states still allowed slavery at this time, with the many other issues regarding how to set up a government the idea of tackling such a major political social and economic issue would just have to wait in late 1776 congress would not even resolve the disputes over creating the articles it would take congress as i said till near the end of 1777 before it could finally agree on articles of confederation I'm not going to get into all the debate details now, because that will probably be a whole future episode. For now, suffice it to say that coming to any consensus on any of this stuff was impossible. Congress would argue about it, then they would put it aside when they needed to deal with more pressing issues, like how to keep the army fed as the regulars advanced on Philadelphia. Congress was eager to find allies in Europe to help with the war effort. That had actually been one of the main arguments in favor of declaring independence. So, with the debate over the Declaration behind them, European alliances became a front-burner issue. The colonies had a wealth of trade goods that British laws had kept them from trading with Europe. But now that they were independent, Americans hoped to use this trade to tempt Europeans into trading for goods that they needed for the war effort. John Adams had been working on a draft of just such a treaty since at least March 1776. On July 18th, once Congress had completed its debate on independence, Adams decided it was time to submit his model treaty for consideration. Congress reviewed and debated Adams's model treaty over the next two months. On September 17th, Congress finally approved the model treaty which it hoped to shop around Europe and see if it could make any deals. The following week, Congress adopted instructions for a delegation of commissioners to go to Europe and use this model treaty as a basis for negotiations. It formally appointed Silas Dean, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson as European commissioners. As you may recall from episode 83, Congress had already sent Dean to Europe where he was unofficially lobbying France and trying to get military assistance for the cause. 
Franklin, who had spent years in London as a colonial agent, prepared for his new role as an American diplomat in France. Jefferson begged off and returned to Virginia, where he would work on the new state's legal code. So, for the third delegate, Congress turned to another Virginian, Arthur Lee, who you may recall from episode 108, had been living in London and trying to compete with Dean in setting up arms deals for the Continental Army. At the time, Arthur Lee had not one but two brothers serving in the Continental Congress, Francis Lightfoot Lee and Richard Henry Lee. So I think family connections played a big role in getting the job. As you may also recall, though, Lee and Dean already really hated each other. Franklin, who had also known Lee when the two men lived in London, also did not much care for Lee. So from the beginning, the delegation was definitely not a united one. It would also take months for Franklin to cross the Atlantic and for Lee to learn of his new commission. So for almost the rest of 1776, Dean continued to operate in France on his own. In mid-August, French newspapers reported that America had declared independence. Dean, in France, never received direct word from Congress, nor even a copy of the declaration to present to the Court of Versailles. Congress did try to mail him a copy, but it never arrived. Also by this time, Arthur Lee had come to Paris, only to find that Dean had already finalized about 3 million livres worth of military contracts. Lee, who had hoped to profit from some of these deals, began writing letters to his brothers in the Continental Congress, as well as his friend Samuel Adams. Lee told them that France was not covertly selling these supplies in exchange for tobacco. Rather, France was giving those military supplies for free. Lee alleged that Dean was attempting to profit from the assistance by getting Congress to send payments, which he could keep for himself. Lee absolutely knew this was a lie. He had spoken to French diplomats and other knowledgeable sources who confirmed that these were sales, not gifts. Lee just seemed to want to destroy Dean's credibility with Congress and get him sent home. Around this same time in London, the opposition in Parliament complained publicly that Silas Dean was openly meeting with the foreign minister, Vergen, and arranging for French covert arms shipments to America. Dean's agent, Edward Bancroft, reported this public information to Dean, who now feared that British spies knew everything he was doing. Of course, what Dean did not suspect was that his own agent, Bancroft, was in fact the double agent who was giving most of this information to the British. With the British exposing the arms deal publicly, with Congress not communicating with Dean, and with America not shipping boatloads of tobacco to France to pay for the arms, the French government began to doubt whether Dean was even a legitimate agent of the American government. It also feared that British knowledge of its attempts at aid were about to lead to war between France and Britain. For a few weeks, the French government shut down the operation completely. Only Dean's heavy lobbying efforts convinced them to allow it to continue. Even after continuation, though, Dean and his French associate, Beaumarchais, could not seem to get anything done 
without British officials complaining to the French government to shut down their illegal exports. Since the British had spies working in their offices, they of course knew everything the Americans attempted to do with shipments and were able to get the French government to shut them down before they could leave port. The French had to comply with these demands or else face the possibility of going to war with Britain. Dean was of course frustrated at his inability to get anything done, but also by his inability to get any guidance from Philadelphia on how to do his job. As a result, he was pretty much making up the job as he went along. He tried to maintain a private trading business to hide his arms deals, but that did not seem to fool anyone. He tried to intervene when an American privateer landed in Spain with five British ships as prizes. Since no one recognized the United States as a sovereign power, they also did not recognize the Continental Congress's letters of Mark authorizing the captain to act as a privateer. Without a valid letter of Mark, he was just a pirate who should be hanged. Although Dean still had no official government authority, he got the French government to intervene and release the captain and his crew. In doing so, Dean had to promise that American privateers would avoid using Spanish or French ports in the future. I'm not sure anyone believed that promise, but it gave the French government enough cover to get the uh, privateer released. Dean also started making other commitments, again without any congressional authorization. France had been pressuring Lee to commission French officers to go fight in the Continental Army. At this time, it was a common practice in Europe for officers to serve in other armies when their country was at peace. The officers gained valuable experience in command and battle. Typically, an officer would be enticed by being able to command at a higher rank than he had in his own army. At this time, the Continental Army would benefit from experienced officers and engineers who had professional training. So, although he had zero authority to do so, Dean granted a commission as a major general in the Continental Army to the German-born French officer Baron Johann de Kalb along with a 6,000 livre advance and a promise of another 6,000 to pay his expenses. Even more disturbing than Dean's decision to commission generals without the approval of Congress was the fact that de Kalb's main mission seemed to be to convince Congress to replace General Washington with French General Victor de Broglie as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Up until that time, de Broglie's biggest accomplishment was losing the Seven Years' War with Britain. Although in the fall of 1776, many Americans were thinking about replacing Washington, it's hard to imagine anyone thinking that putting a French general in charge of the army was an acceptable idea. Dean simply sent a letter to Congress saying that the French government thought it was a good idea without giving his own opinion one way or the other but the simple act of passing along the proposal without comment led many in Congress to conclude that Dean seriously thought this was a good idea, and that made Congress begin to question Dean's judgment. After de Kalb's appointment, many other French officers sought an audience with Dean seeking commissions. Most got turned away, but Dean did issue a few others, including another major general's commission 
to a 19-year-old marquee named Lafayette. In total, Dean issued about 60 commissions, including four major generals, all without any authorization from Congress. I'm sure Dean would have loved to have heard from Congress about whether or not he should be doing this, but he was really getting no information from Philadelphia. He had not received word from Congress about anything. Congress had attempted to send communications, but the British had been pretty effective in intercepting or forcing the destruction of all messages between America and France. British spies in France were able to keep close tabs on the activities of Beaumarchais and Dean as they purchased and stored military supplies bound for Europe. By November 1776, the Rodrigue Hortelez Company, which you may recall Beaumarchais had created as a front for the covert arms deals, was ready to load up three large supply ships in Le Havre, France, for its first big shipment to America. The mission had the tacit support of the French government. Recall that back in episode 108, French Minister Vergen had put Dean and Beaumarchais in contact with each other. The French government, however, could not appear to support the Americans actively. If the British discovered the plan to sell arms to America, the French government would have to disavow having any knowledge of it and shut it down. Everyone was trying to keep a low profile so the British spies would not discover the plots. Beaumarchais was working in town under an assumed name as he oversaw the loading of supplies. Departure was delayed, however, when a French officer, Colonel Ducordray, whom Dean had promised to make a major general, delayed coming to town. He had received word that the British had taken New York and now feared that the war might be over before he could arrive in America. Finally, Ducordray showed up in early December, ready to sail. In the meantime, Beaumarchais discovered a local production in Le Havre of his play, The Barber of Seville. He did not like the production, and offered to assist as director of the play. Soon, word got out that Beaumarchais was directing his play at Le Havre. This blew his cover, and British agents quickly realized that he was in town to load up ships for America. The British ambassador, Lord Stormont, of course, rushed to Versailles to demand Virgin stop the departure of these ships, or he would consider it an act of war. Virgin had no choice but to order the ships seized. He delayed getting the order to Le Havre for a couple of days, hoping the ships might get out of port before his orders could arrive but only one ship had left port by the time his orders made it there. A couple of weeks later, though, the one ship that had left port returned to France. A storm had destroyed part of its food. Also, Colonel Ducordray thought his quarters were unacceptable and demanded the captain return to port. By then, France had been forced to impose an embargo on all of Beaumarchais' ships, so authorities seized the ship as soon as it returned to harbor. So, no assistance would leave France in 1776, thanks to Beaumarchais' ego over his play and General du Cordray's slowing up the operation with his reluctance to leave for America. French aid would have to wait until Franklin and Lee arrived in France in early 1777. 
Franklin, Lee, and Dean would all have to learn to play nice with each other before they could convince the French to provide arms to America. They never would discover that Secretary Bancroft was a British spy. He would continue his work for London throughout the war. After the war, Bancroft moved to England, but continued to correspond with Franklin. It was only decades after everyone died that Bancroft's role as a spy became public knowledge. Next week, Silas Dean lands himself in even more hot water after he provides funds to a terrorist who promised to destroy shipyards in Britain on behalf of the American cause. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey! Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Today, I want to thank our Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vanderberg, who runs Colonial Theater on the air. His site is colonialradio.com. Colonial Theater produces audio works on a wide variety of topics, such as, you know, comedies, dramas, sci-fi. I'm always drawn to the historical fiction. I've mentioned the Ticonderoga series, which is set in the French and Indian War, one I really enjoyed. The story takes place during the same events that I covered in the first few episodes of this podcast. In the past, I have compared Colonial Theater's work to old-time radio shows. I recently learned that you can actually listen to some of their work on the radio. Colonial Theater appears on Sunday and Thursday nights on KIXI AM radio so you can actually enjoy them on an actual radio. Of course, if you don't have an AM radio or are not in Seattle, Washington, you can listen to the show on KIXI by going to the station's website, KIXI.com. I think most of us find it more convenient to listen at our leisure rather than at a set time. So there are plenty of other ways to listen to their work. If you have an Audible account or sign up for one, you can get the episodes from Audible. You can also get them from Apple Music or buy the CDs on Amazon. If you want to check out the full library and download some free samples, go to their website at colonialradio.com. And I also have a link on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Today, Congress was starting to get serious about dating France. They sent some gentlemen callers in the form of a commission. Silas Dean was already representing Congress, but he did not have any official capacity at the Court of Versailles. 
aside from the French government not recognizing him in any official status, the British were doing a great job at preventing much of any communications from getting from Congress to France, thus leaving Dean pretty much on his own. The decision to send Franklin not only meant a more experienced diplomat who could operate on his own, but was a further attempt at more formal recognition of the Americans as diplomats. Remember, although no one believed the cover story, Silas Dean was sent as a private businessman seeking business ventures in France. Now, both he and Franklin and Arthur Lee had official and publicly announced appointments as American commissioners in Europe. Now, the French did not recognize Franklin in any capacity either, but his notoriety in France opened doors for him as well as the American cause. We'll hear more about that in a future episode. France's involvement in the war is going to have a major impact down the road. So getting from the point we're at now to the one where they actually joined the war was a long and difficult process. And that leads me to today's book recommendation, which describes that process. It is called A Diplomatic History of the American Revolution by Jonathan Dull. It gives good coverage to a topic that's not really been covered very well by many other books. Dull spent much of his career editing Ben Franklin's papers and has developed a real expertise in the topic. He's written at least eight books dealing with France and or the American Navy during the American Revolution. Now, the book A Diplomatic History is not very long, less than 200 pages. It was first published in 1985 and is one of his earlier works. Without making too much play on his name, I have to admit that Jonathan Dull's writing style is, in fact, a little dull. The book is more of a just-the-facts kind of a book. The author's writing style can be a little dry. That said, it is interesting for its coverage of the topic. My online recommendation this week is a website for something that I mentioned last week. I mentioned then that I went to a reading for a new show called The Crossing and Ten Crucial Days, the musical. Some of you wondered where you might learn more about the show. Well, they have a website where you can learn about the show's cast and producers and directors and writers if you want to read more about the musical that is hopefully going to be in production soon go to thecrossingmusical.com. And of course, there'll be a post for that also on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>